Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Today, I am starting a, it will be at least two parts on one of my favorite books. It's called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. The reason that I love this book so much is because, as I've shared before, I am biracial, half African, and half Caucasian. And Trevor Noah has that same background. He actually grew up in South Africa during apartheid. So while we have similar racial background, his environment was very different from mine. So I've always enjoyed reading his story. I probably read this book at least five or six times. So far, I've kind of carved out at least two episode topics, the first being apartheid in South Africa, and the second topic kind of focusing on race, colorism, and inequality that existed for Trevor within that apartheid environment as he was growing up. So he starts the book with the Immorality Act of 1927. So I'm going to read that to you. Quote, to prohibit illicit carnal intercourse between Europeans and natives and other acts in relation thereto, be it enacted by the king's most excellent majesty, the Senate and the House of Assembly of the Union of South Africa as follows. 1. Any European male who has illicit carnal intercourse with a native female and any native male who has illicit carnal intercourse with a European female shall be guilty of an offense and liable on conviction to imprisonment for a period not exceeding five years. 2. Any native female who permits any European male to have illicit carnal intercourse with her and any European female who permits any native male to have illicit carnal intercourse with her shall be guilty of an offense and liable on conviction to imprisonment for a period not exceeding four years, end quote. This immorality act was kind of the cornerstone of apartheid. And hopefully as I discuss this book in the next couple of episodes, you'll kind of be able to gain a better understanding of what apartheid was, and it kind of contributes to this overall theme that I've been talking about, injustice, race, prejudice, all of that sort of stuff. So I'm going to share a quote based on Noah's perspective from a young age. I was five years old, nearly six, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. I remember seeing it on TV and everyone being happy. I don't know why we were happy, just that we were. I was aware of the fact that there was a thing called apartheid, and it was ending, and that was a big deal. But I didn't understand the intricacies of it. What I do remember, what I will never forget, is the violence that followed. The triumph of democracy over apartheid is sometimes called the bloodless revolution. 
It is called that because very little white blood was spilled. Black blood ran in the streets. As the apartheid regime fell, we knew that the black man was going to rule. The question was, which black man? The violence broke out between the Freedom Party and the ANC, the African National Congress, as they jockeyed for power. The political dynamic between these two groups was very complicated, but the simplest way to understand is as a proxy war between Zulu and Kosa. The Freedom Party was predominantly Zulu, very militant, and very nationalistic. The ANC was a broad coalition encompassing many different tribes, but its leaders at the time were primarily Kosa. Instead of uniting for peace, they turned on one another, committing acts of unbelievable savagery. Massive riots broke out. Thousands of people were killed. Necklacing was common. That's where people would hold someone down, put a rubber tire over his torso, pinning his arms. Then they'd douse him with petrol and set him on fire and burn him alive. The ANC did it to the Freedom Party, and the Freedom Party did it to the ANC. I saw one of those charred bodies on the side of the road one day on my way to school, end quote. What I think you'll gather about apartheid as I kind of share about it through Trevor Noah's perspective is that not only was it incredibly systematic and deliberate, it was quite violent and confusing. And one of the things that I appreciate about this book is that Trevor Noah is a comedian. So while he's sharing about these very trying, challenging, horrific things that he wit- he does it with humor. Um, and so I'm going to do my best when sharing quotes to kind of throw in some of that humor as well. Now, something I didn't mention before is that Trevor Noah's mom is the absolute hero and badass of this book. She is fearless. She is a rebel. She doesn't stay within side of anybody's lines or doesn't let anybody fit her into a box. And so I'm going to try to highlight some of that as I'm kind of going through this book. So here's an example. Quote, whenever the riots broke out, all our neighbors would wisely hole up behind closed doors but not my mom. She'd head straight out, and as we inched our way past the blockades, she'd give the rioters this look. Let me pass. I'm not involved in this shit. She was unwavering in the face of danger. That always amazed me. It didn't matter that there was a war on our doorstep. She had things to do, places to be. End quote. The good thing about this book is that it shares a lot of history as the author was witnessing it, but there's also these really funny bright spots between how Trevor's mom kind of handled the adversity, but also that that humor that I had mentioned. So to kind of go a little bit deeper, here's a quote. Apartheid was perfect racism. It took centuries to develop, starting all the way back in 1652 when the Dutch East India Company landed at the Cape of Good Hope and established a trading colony, Capstad, later known as Cape Town, a rest stop for ships traveling between Europe and India. To impose white rule, the Dutch colonists went to war with the natives, ultimately developing a set of laws to subjugate and enslave them. When the British took over the Cape Colony, the descendants of the original Dutch settlers 
trekked inland, and developed their own language, culture, and customs, eventually becoming their own people, the white tribe of Africa. The British abolished slavery in name but kept it in practice. They did so because in the mid-1800s, in what had been written off as a near-worthless way station on the route to the Far East, a few lucky capitalists stumbled upon the richest gold and diamond reserves in the world, and an endless supply of expendable bodies was needed to go in the ground and get it all out. As the British Empire fell, the government realized they needed a newer and more robust set of tools. They set up a formal commission to go out and study institutionalized racism all over the world. They went to Australia. They went to the Netherlands. They went to America. They saw what worked, what didn't. Then they came back and published a report, and the government used that knowledge to build the most advanced system of racial oppression known to man. Apartheid was a police state, a system of surveillance and laws designed to keep black people under total control. A full compendium of those laws would run more than 3,000 pages and weigh approximately 10 pounds. But the general thrust of it should be easy enough for any American to understand. In America, you had the forced removal of the native onto reservations coupled with slavery, followed by segregation. Imagine all three of those things happening to the same group of people at the same time. That was apartheid. End quote. Um, so next I want to talk about Trevor Noah's parents and how their decision to have him was a rebellion in and of itself in the midst of the apartheid South Africa in the 80s. Quote, I was raised in a mixed family, with me being the mixed one in the family. My mother, Patricia Noah, is black. My father, Robert, is white, Swiss German to be precise. During apartheid, one of the worst crimes you could commit was having sexual relations with a person of another race. Needless to say, my parents committed that crime. In any society built on institutionalized racism, race mixing doesn't merely challenge the system as unjust, it reveals the system as unsustainable and incoherent. Race mixing proves that races can mix, and in a lot of cases want to mix. Because a mixed person embodies that rebuke to the logic of the system, race mixing becomes a crime worse than treason. End quote. So as the author provides that explanation, a example of this that I've experienced comes to mind. So I would say about a year ago, there's a celebrity that I was following on Instagram. I had kind of engaged with some of their posts over time, and I had actually DM'd and kind of chatted with this person over time. And so I kind of had a bit of rapport with this person. Imagine my surprise when I saw this person was watching, I guess, a movie, and they were explaining how they were furious when they see in popular movies a black man dating a white woman. As a mixed person myself, literally the product of a African and a white woman getting together, I was kind of 
taken aback by the fact that this celebrity who the theme of the summer had been equality and, you know, Black Lives Matter and all of this stuff. And so for them to go on this tangent, to me, it appeared very reckless. So having had rapport with this person, I responded to the story through direct message. And I said, you know, I explained, hey, this is hurtful to see. And I kind of explained, I said, you know, I'm a biracial person. And growing up, I was judged, discriminated against because of my existence, right? My existence shows that there was a mixing of race, right? And then I also went on to explain that I, as a black biracial person, married and had a child with my wife, who my child is mixed because I'm mixed and my wife is Caucasian. And I said, when you say things like this, talking about how you can't stand seeing a black man with a white woman portrayed in a movie or a TV show, and how it's frustrating to you, it doesn't sit right with me. So I just kind of called her out on the inconsistency. Pretty much all of the other messaging, it was, you know, equality, Black Lives Matter, all of that kind of stuff. But then in this particular instance, it felt, and it was, she was being racist in her statements. So I called her out on it. I had to say something because her words hurt me personally to see and hear that messaging being broadcast to such a huge following for somebody with such a big platform to kind of be saying that. I saw it as very destructive and hurtful, but I share that story to to say that I, I've witnessed people fear the mixing of race. You know, we've rented an apartment before where the leasing office run by a black lady treated my wife like shit. Anytime she would go in to inquire about something or put in a maintenance report or anything like that. But then when I went in, they were super duper nice to me. And anytime we would be seen together, the whole demeanor would change. So this sort of racism around the mixing of races definitely exists. I've definitely experienced it. So I thought I would share that story to kind of provide some context. So on that same vein, here's the quote. The government went to insane lengths to try to enforce these new laws. The penalty for breaking them was five years in prison. There were whole police squads whose only job was to go around peeking through windows, clearly an assignment for only the finest law enforcement officers. And if an interracial couple got caught, God help them. The police would kick down the door, drag the people out, beat them, arrest them. At least that's what they did to the black person. With the white person, it was more like, look, I'll just say you were drunk, but don't do it again, eh? Cheers. That's how it was with a white man and a black woman. If a black man was caught having sex with a white woman, he'd be lucky if he wasn't charged with rape. If you ask my mother whether she ever considered the ramifications of having a mixed child under apartheid, she will say no. She wanted to do something, figured out a way to do it, and then she did it. She had a level of fearlessness that you have to possess to take on something like she did. If you stop to consider the ramifications, you'll never do anything. Still, it was a crazy, reckless thing to do. 
A million things had to go right for us to slip through the cracks the way we did for as long as we did. End quote. As you're listening to this, I hope that you could probably make some linkages between the systemic racism that was going on in South Africa during apartheid, which really wasn't that long ago, and how it parallels to what the United States went through slash is continuing to go through today. Here is another one, quote, the ultimate goal of apartheid was to make South Africa a white country with every black person stripped of his or her citizenship and relocated to live in the homelands. But this so-called white country could not function without black labor to produce its wealth, which meant black people had to be allowed to live near white areas in the townships, government-planned ghettos built to house black workers, like Soweto. The township was where you lived, but your status as a laborer was the only thing that permitted you to stay there. If your papers were revoked for any reason, you could be deported back to the homelands, end quote. And I share this quote because it sounds incredibly similar to the history of after emancipation of slavery in the United States, there was this new economy that kind of basically mimicked that of slavery and it was sharecropping. So it's basically this system where you work on the same lands that you were enslaved on, but now you are taking ownership in it. But the way they did it was they would basically have these workers working on their farms and jack up the cost and in debt them. So then they couldn't leave. And it was basically the same system just with different packaging similar to that of South Africa, you've got racism, which is trying to say, ah, this needs to be all white and we need to get rid of the black people. But the economy doesn't work without cheap black labor. And so their idea of white supremacy, not so surprisingly, doesn't work because it requires the labor of the black people. So going back to Trevor Noah's parents, he talks about how his dad was 46 and his mom was 24, and they were more so acquaintances, friends. When you get this book and read it, you will fall in love with the story of his mom. But I'm going to kind of share the dynamics of how this all came to be. So, quote, but how romantic their relationship was and to what extent they were just friends, I cannot say. All I do know is that one day she made her proposal. I want to have a kid, she told him. I don't want kids, he said. I didn't ask you to have a kid. I asked you to help me have my kid. I'm Catholic, he said. We don't do such things. You do know, she replied, that I could sleep with you and go away and you would never know if you had a child or not. But I don't want that. Honor me with your yes so that I can live peacefully. I want a child of my own, and I want it from you. You will be able to see it as much as you like, but you will have no obligations. You don't have to talk to it. You don't have to pay for it. Just make this child for me. For my mother's part, the fact that this man didn't particularly want a family with her, was prevented by law from having a family with her, was part of the attraction. She wanted a child, not a man stepping in to run her life. For my father's part, I know that for a long time he kept saying no. 
Eventually, he said yes. Why he said yes is a question I will never have the answer to. Nine months after that yes, on February 20th, 1984, my mother checked into Hillbrow Hospital for a scheduled C-section delivery. Estranged from her family, pregnant by a man she could not be seen with in public, she was alone. The doctors took her up to the delivery room, cut open her belly, and reached in and pulled out a half-white, half-black child who violated any number of laws, statutes, and regulations. I was born a crime. Where most children are proof of their parents' love, I was proof of their criminality. The only time I could be with my father was indoors. If we left the house, he'd have to walk across the street from us. My mother tells me that once, when I was a toddler, my dad tried to go with us. We were in the park, he was walking a good bit away from us, and I ran after him screaming, Daddy! 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 People started looking, he panicked and ran away. I thought it was a game, and I kept chasing him. I couldn't walk with my mother either. A light-skinned child with a black woman would raise too many questions. My mom found cracks in the system. It was illegal to be mixed, which meant to have a black parent with a white parent. But it was not illegal to be colored, to have two parents who were both colored. So my mom moved me around the world as a colored child. She found a colored area where she could leave me while she was at work. There was a colored woman named Queen who lived in our block of flats. When we wanted to go out to the park, my mom would invite her to go with us. Queen would walk next to me and act like she was my mother, and my mother would walk a few steps behind like she was the maid working for the colored woman. I've got dozens of pictures of me walking with this woman who looks like me, but who isn't my mother. And the black woman standing behind us who looks like she's photobombing the picture, that's my mom. When we didn't have a colored woman to walk with us, my mom would risk walking me on her own. She would hold my hand or carry me, but if the police showed up, she would have to drop me and pretend I wasn't hers, like I was a bag of weed, end quote. In apartheid, I don't know if you caught on, but there were basically three categories of people. There was white, there was black, and then there was colored. So colored is mixed, but the way that apartheid was set up, everyone was set to live in separate areas. So Black people lived in black areas, white people lived in white areas, colored people lived in colored areas. And as the previous information shows, there was not to be any race mixing. I'll get more into the ideas around the mixing of races and the sense of, you know, racism, colorism, and kind of the ideals passed down to South Africa through colonialism in the next episode. But I'm going to share one more quote. Whenever we went to Soweto, my grandmother refused to let me outside. If she was watching me, it was no, 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 he doesn't leave the house. Behind the wall in the yard, I could play but not in the street. And that's where the rest of the boys and the girls were playing, in the street. My cousins, the neighborhood kids, they'd open the gate and head out to roam free and come back at dusk. I'd beg my grandmother to go outside. Please, please, can I go play with my cousins? No, they're going to take you. For the longest time, I thought she meant that the other kids were going to steal me. 
but she was talking about the police. Children could be taken. Children were taken. The wrong color kid in the wrong color area, and the government could come in, strip your parents of custody, and haul you off to an orphanage. End quote. So hopefully, the snippets that I've shared from this book so far has kind of given you a glimpse into some of the political dynamics that were going on in apartheid South Africa around this time. On the next episode, I'm going to go a little bit more into race and justice and the author's unique perspective of growing up as a biracial person under this sort of environment. So definitely stay tuned for that next episode. But until then, take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.